Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we speak with Jesse Chester, Category Leadership Director at Mars. This was a really sweet conversation, and I mean that literally, as Mars is the company behind fan favorites like the Mars Bar, Snickers, Twix, etc., as well as some brands that you might not know were theirs, like Whiskas, Dove, and Uncle Ben's. We talk about how the Chinese market treats confectionery and sweets when compared to North America. We talk about what the differing tastes and preferences such as texture are for Chinese consumers, and what some of the unique flavors were that they created just for for the Chinese market. We talk about the differences in the demographics for candy, gum, and chocolates, as well as how the each demographic shops for and pays for them. We also talk about how Mars competed with domestic brands and some of the strategies and tactics they leaned on to stay competitive there. Enjoy. It's become very much a pay-to-play game. So if you have the budget, you have you can get access to it. But if you don't, then that's it's data that you don't typically have. So as you work with with Ollie, you can buy into their different campaigns. You can buy into different you know segments that you want to track. And that's one of the challenges that we have. You know, as you build it, build your business over there, is that that's taken away from margin that, that typically you didn't have to spend on. So it, it forces you into reevaluating the business model. Home to over four billion people, the Asia Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber and Facebook. Times are changing and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early stage tech companies enter the Asia Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Todd, appreciate you having me. So let's get a bit of your background. Talk to us about what you were doing and how you ended up going to China. Yeah, kind of a little crazy story. Uh, so work for Mars Wrigley and in category management, you know, leading several teams here in the States. And to be honest, it's always been part of my ambition to, to lead a team across the seas and just through the right connections, able to have the chance to uh, interview and then ultimately go to China. Uh, what was interesting about that is I've never actually been out of the U.S. until I made the move uh, to China. So a big step for me, uh, but fortunate to have both the ambition, uh, the company backing me, so the support there and then the right mentors in place to, to make it happen. Can I ask what time of year you moved? So we moved in, it was March uh, when I went over there. So just, okay. just coming out of the winter season. So we moved to Guangzhou, uh, China. So Southern China. So you moved just after Chinese New Year then? It was. We just missed Chinese New Year. And uh, what you saw is you still saw some of the remnants of, remnants of it, but missed, missed the big red packets, missed uh, a lot of mm-hmm. the celebration. And so how long you're back in the, you're back in the U S now you, you're, uh, where are you? So in Bentonville, Arkansas, so home of Walmart. So currently, currently leading up a category team here for Mars Wrigley, uh, in Bentonville on the Walmart account. So how long in total were you in China? 
we found ourselves, it was cut, you know, very short due to you know the COVID situation that we're in now. Okay. We actually were on vacation in Laos when, when everything started to come down and made the decision to come back to the States for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we all know how that kind of turned out, you know, still not able to go back to, to China because of, right. the, because of the regulations, the rules that are happening. And that's where Mars was able to find me a, you know, something here in the States, even though I continued to run that organization through about June. And is the plan to go back? So the plan will be at some point to go back. But as far as the role that I had there, I've fully transitioned out of it now. Uh, but it's, it's something that's installed a lot of wanderlust within uh, my wife and my family and I to, to go back. Right. I think once you've been there, you know, gender really puts a special place in your heart. And, you know, we absolutely have that, that ambition of going back there at some point. Admit it. You missed the food. <laughs> I, I actually do. And, and funny enough, my wife who, didn't like it for the longest time, you know, now craves some of it. So it, it's, it's, it's that experience, right? When you're, when you're so far away from what you're, you're used to, to doing and in almost being, uh, and the way that I think we were pulled out of it at such an abrupt uh, time. Yeah. It's, it, it creates a, a hole and we, we miss it. Can you tell us a little bit more kind of in detail what your role was and your interaction was with the market there? Yeah. So my role was leading the category leadership organization. So as you think through it, a retailer, uh, you know, within the marketplace, my job was to help uh, create the strategic plans around driving category growth. And this is working with the retailers themselves, working internally to help understand, right? How do we not just take a Mars centric approach to grow, but rather how do we grow the full marketplace within treat snacks? Uh, and while I was over there, so outside of just leading the category organization, I also ran the, you know, led part of the reinventing the way that Mars did innovation and also had the opportunity to look at our, our current portfolio and, and to rationalize it. Okay. So this is going to be a really fun conversation because as I know, you know, confectionery and sweets kind of market in Asia is, is really interesting because there's so many cultural um, nuances and influences uh, that go on. I know, you know, like in, in China things. And there's so many, I even remember in business school, business case studies of mistakes that I think a lot of North American and European brands made in devising uh, not just marketing strategies, but actual product uh, developments in going to Asia and just kind of misstepping left, right and center. So tell us uh, a little bit about how does the Chinese market treat confectionery and sweets when, you know, even in comparison to something like North America, some place like North America? I think it's very different as you look at you know, sweets in general, uh, they consume less than half of what we do in, in the U.S. So it's not a real big sweets market. But when we think of a treat, you know, typically in the U.S., we think of something sweet, maybe, uh, you know, a, a Snickers bar, or a piece of gum. You know, in China, that can be everything from the Snickers bar to, uh, you know, a, a thing of corn to a bread roll, right? Their definition of snacks is much, much broader and when you talk about even the flavor profiles, right, it's, it's everything from, from fruit flavors to tea flavors, some traditional flavors that you would find in the West, uh, to, to some really exotic for us, like durian. Um, 
So it really runs the full gamut. And I think their expectation, you know, as, as we talk about some of the nuances between the two, right? What works in the West is, is not always what's going to work in the East. And, and a lot of that is due to their, you know, just that historical diet, uh, that they, mm-hmm. they really try to, you know, achieve or the way that they look at it, right? Food is much more part of medicine for them than it is for us in the West. Let me ask you a naive question on purpose, which is, do the Chinese think of, you know, confectionery sweets as unhealthy or, or uh, you know, kind of like junk food or desserts or how do they kind of classify it in, in your experience? In my experience, you know, in versus the West, so I'll, I'll yeah. compare it back to versus the West, where in the West, we're seeing a negative trend and a negative viewpoint of, of that. You know, in the East, we didn't see that as much, right? You're starting to see some healthy trends, but because their consumption of it typically is so much lower, right? It's not reaching that threshold of caution, if that makes sense. You mentioned how different it is perceived in the West than the East, although the East is starting to trend towards that same uh, perception. How does that influence marketing the products that you were taking to market there? Yeah, I think some of the ways that you go to market are, are very different. Uh, so the KOLs, right, the, the key opinion leaders online on the, on the online platforms play a much bigger role there than I think they're playing in the, in the West. So that's, that's one way. And then as you look at some of the marketing, marketing itself, uh, so whether it's the holidays getting really connected into the holidays, uh, or some of the events. So Teacher's Day in China is really big. Uh, and, and it's, it's big in confection because it's, you know, it, it's teacher, right? you know, be able to treat and gift. So it's, it's an occasion for gifting. Where I think there are many more micro seasons or micro occasions in China uh, to be able to bring that kind of natural habit, that Chinese habit of gifting out, than maybe what you would see in the West. With regards to messaging and the copy, anything that you can point to that you needed to be aware of or something that you could tease out to almost inform and educate our audience about? Uh, so as I, as I think back and I, Shame, I can't think of any specific examples, but I know, you know, some of the things that you need to watch out for is right the wording or the way that you're tailing the message. You know, a lot of a lot of our sayings from the West that you would think be able that would be able to translate, you know, either do so really roughly or just completely not understood, and vice versa. Um, and then as you look at maybe as I think through some of the other types of messaging or the way that we would. Um, you know, brand, brand the product, just trying to do so through a, a really, uh, truly a, a Chinese lens. And we were fortunate, you know, having, having offices, China's a big business for us that, you know, we were running a little bit more autonomous maybe than some of the other regions because of that need for that, that Chinese perspective. Now that we've kind of dealt with the senses of sight and ear, or listening, I should say, let's move to taste. Okay. Now just tell you about how, how would consumer preferences differ specifically around tastes and flavors and maybe even smell? I don't know. How did you account for those in the role that you were in while you were there? So one of the things that matter most in China, it's, you know, taste matters, but texture 
texture and flavor are some of the most important things that you can you can do. And that's one of the issues, maybe not issues, but one of the challenges with chocolate is it's that texture. And the traditional Chinese, they don't like that hanging around the mouth, around the tongue. Um, so we spend a lot of time on texture, spend a lot of time on, you know, really getting into what are the right flavors. So you had, you know, a lot of the teas, a lot of the, you know, say matcha, jasmine, you had uh, those flavors pop up, you know, whether it's in gum, whether it's in chocolate, like I mentioned, I think some of the fruity flavors that they have. Uh, so those were big. But then as you, as you continue to look through packaging, so beyond just flavors, packaging plays a, a big role there. Uh, because of the, the, gift, the gifting aspect of, of the Chinese, and I think also the, you know, the, the newness, their, their want for innovation. So packaging actually plays a big role within that, that experience as well, more so than it does in the West. How did you overcome the understanding barrier? Like, how were you innovative? Were you able to run trials and do testing? How did you do that or run that um, in China to be able to learn quickly and get up to speed? Did you hire in the knowledge? Did you go and just be willing to kind of fail, fail fast and iterate and learn and then rejig? Um, how did you go about that? Yeah, so I so I'll look at it as both the, the company aspect and me personally, uh, right? Me personally going over there and being able to understand the marketplace. You know, as a, as a foreigner, they were asking my opinion a lot of what did I think of the innovation and I had to to stop myself from answering because I know that it's so different over there. So it was really turning it back around and, and getting them to answer and then getting them to understand, right? How can we search the answers and who do we need to talk to? Uh, you know, who are the consumers for this product from a company standpoint, you know, very fortunate that, you know, we have a, a Chinese organization there. So it wasn't, I think as much of a hassle, or what we wanted to develop for the Chinese market, where I think the bigger challenge was as we were working back internally, uh, back within our, our global business to get them to understand the differences and, and truly understand why a Western right, new innovation wouldn't work in China. But on the, on the flip side of that, why some of the stuff in China would work through the rest of the world and, and working on that balance there. Forgive me if this assumption is inaccurate, but as you mentioned, when they ask your opinion a lot, did it take you a while to understand the culture of, of kind of giving face and that they, as, as the boss, they were going to come to you more often than you probably felt necessary and ask you a lot of what you thought and what you wanted to do. Maybe not even as much as they didn't know, but they felt that it was the right thing to do. Yeah. So that's, that is one of the bigger challenges that, that I faced there. And it's, it's part of that. And then also how they look up to authority. And it's, it's something that we had to you know, consciously work through and discuss with the team. Um, you know, many, many times in, in the conversations I was having with them, we'd have to bring that up. And as far as it, another point on the losing the face or, or keeping the face, uh, 
you know, how I dealt with it was just, you know, how do I just be as vulnerable as possible to almost provide that roadmap or that, that example that they could then, then almost recreate themselves to, you know, one of the problems that you face, I think when dealing with the Chinese is everything is great, even if it's not because they don't want to lose that face. So it's, it's both being really intentional on the questions that you ask and, and digging deeper, you know, the, the two or three layers to really find out the truth, but then also highlighting maybe things that, you know, like I said, I was much more vulnerable than I probably would be anywhere else uh, in, in failures that I had or things that weren't necessarily working just to show them that it's okay. And then reward in front of everyone in a positive manner, anyone that would share that vulnerability. So, you know, it's, it's bringing up that, you know, good news or bad news should travel faster than good. And just making that something that I rewarded. Two-sided question here. And the first side has an A and B. So pardon me for this. But <laughs> did you personally do anything, study anything, read anything to try to get up to speed on, you know, the culture, the business culture, the management culture that you were going to be kind of jumping into? And on the flip side, did Mars Wrigley provide or, uh, you know, as an organization, put you through any kind of, let's call it training um, to then, you know, before you were kind of thrown into the deep end of the pool going straight into China? Yeah, the answer is yes. And, and a heavy yes to both. So I'll start with what Mars, Mars provided. Mars actually sent somebody to our house from China. Uh, before we moved over, over there, who was Chinese, but living in the U.S. And we had a full weekend with them and just kind of that cultural immersion to help understand what is, what is it that we should be expecting, uh, what is appropriate, what is not. You know, dealing with China, what is it that you talk about, what is it that you don't. And found that incredibly, incredibly valuable. Another thing that they did was they actually set us up with other people that lived in Guangzhou uh, that were expats for other companies. And, you know, in initially creating that, you know, most mentorship uh, from when we, when we landed there from both a personal and a business perspective. So very supportive on both of those. And in, in line with that, they also gave us uh, language training. Uh, so that way, not only could we be, you know, understand the culture, but begin to understand the language. Mm. And there, there was continued cultural training while I was over there. From a personal side, uh, I did a lot of work just engaging everyone that I knew that had been on expat assignments. One. Uh, another one was I was fortunate enough to have a few uh, acquaintances that have now become friends that worked in China or had worked in China in their career, uh, typically you know, around the early 2000s. So very fortunate to get them as mentors uh, and to get their advice. So not only when I was you know, getting ready for it, the to help me make a bigger impact when I got there, but then also right through the highs and lows while I was there, which I found really helpful as well. And then outside of that, just continual reading of, you know, whether it's the articles coming out, some of the different cultural, um, I guess, situational analysis papers that, that I could find uh, to help understand, you know, what is the dynamics? How does that play? And, you know, why am I seeing certain things or certain behaviors that maybe I wouldn't have expected? 
Can you point to the one part that you did kind of dive into or learn or, or were, were taught that you really, when you got there, were like, wow, I'm really glad that I, you know, picked up on this before I came. And on the flip side, can you point to something that you may remember that, you know, looking back, you wish you'd paid a little more attention in school to, to understand? Yeah. So I think the one thing that, or the one piece of advice that I did take uh, that I, that I thought helped make my transition that much easier. And it was, you know, it's going to be tough. Just focus on what matters. And, you know, personally, I was, I went over there a few months before even my family came and I knew my principles and my morals were unwavering. I knew the job at hand. It was very clear. Everything else, I was flexible. And in the biggest example, and probably one that got me more credit within the team was that from the, uh, from a food perspective, you know, it didn't matter to me. I wanted to really, you know, food is a big part of their culture. I wanted to, to experience that best I could. So I would always have them order for me if we went out to lunch to the point of, you know, there was, I asked who the foodie was on my team in my organization. And, you know, every day for lunch, I just had what, what he had. So, you know, quickly they, they joked that, you know, I had a, a more Chinese stomach than most Chinese. But I, but I saw that as one of those things that I went over and I just tried to embrace their culture as much as possible. And that food element was the most tangible piece uh, for them to actually see that. So I think, I think that made some great inroads. And when you talk about something that I wish I would have maybe studied more or actioned more, even though I had been told, and it's, it's the part of coming from the West, the way that we're big on coaching and mentoring and, you know, kind of giving that advice and guidance. There, you know, it's much more directive. They're used to being told what is it that they need to do. And then they action and they will move faster than you'll see anywhere else in the world. Uh, I wish I would have balanced that better at the beginning. I was still much too much more or too much consulting, too much more mentorship, too much more, uh, right? I will, I'll tell you the overarching strategy and you tell me what you want to do when in reality that organization just wasn't there in that place yet. So they, they needed more direction right out of the gate. And that's something that I was able to fix, you know, fairly quickly. But one of those that I look back and say, that's, that's a clear one that I could have done uh, better and faster. Did you at any point struggle with, uh, emotional containment, um, and integrating or assimilating or, uh, copying, um, understanding more about, I, I, I always found that at least for me being a bit of an emotional person, but it being relatively okay in the West, um, that I struggled with in the East. I'm just curious if, if, if you noticed that or could speak to that in any way. And you're talking about how they would, uh, contain their emotions and how you could, or even if you um, weren't as emotionally contained. I don't feel like it's as a, as big a thing here, even though it is a big thing. I don't think it's as uh, pointed 
here as it is there. You know, Confucius says, never show your emotions. Um, And I struggled with that because I did not expect it to be to that degree when I got there. Yeah, it's I have never actually thought about it that way. And and only and now that you say that it, it's it is very apparent. I don't know if I struggled through that. Um but I was very open at the front of, you know, kind of who I am, trying to let them understand my style. Like I said, I was much more vulnerable than uh than I than I normally would be because I, I wanted to to get that out of them. And what I found was that as I built trust with the team, you know, they would actually open up a lot more than I ever thought they would. So, you know, I had been given the, the advice or kind of the, the tell before I went from a friend of mine that works over there that, you know, they will seem very, the Chinese seem very, very distant from you until they trust you. And then it's, you know, they become even closer to you than maybe what you would have in the West. And, and that's what I found. So it was, I, I had expected that distance at first, and maybe that's why I wasn't as, you know, as aware or concerned about the emotional containment. But what I did find was that once I was able to get that trust with them, uh, the conversations or what they would open up to you about was, was incredible. And I, and I truly think I gained some of the best friends at all, right? those friendships that, that one could have in, in this earth. Business in China is deeply human relational. And I think it is exhibited, you know, via the round dinner table Um the round dinner table and the Baijiu. Yes. <laughs> your thoughts, your, you know, a, a part of your relationship building. Did you did you begin to understand before you left the importance of 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 that of those um, times after work? But take the team. Everybody goes for dinner and and there's some drinks and a lot of gumbe and and just kind of a celebratory nature and having a lot of fun and how deeply important that was to what we know as the nine to five and how impactful it could be there. Yeah, and from a, I guess, a, a dealing with the retailers or a market perspective, uh, I didn't have as much opportunity to do that. That was really in, in this year's plan. But where I did see that truly come to life was with the internal teams that I dealt with. And, and I think even the most when we, when we would go and visit our own factories and taking some of those associates out, that's really where you began to see that and the importance there. Uh, and you're right, those relationships and, and how it uh, comes to fruition and, and that you develop in those, those nights. Uh, you know, looking back, those are some of the, the better relationships that we had, both, I think, personal, but as we look at moving the business, uh, what you're saying is actually absolutely true. Tell us a little bit more about those trips to visit, you know, the factories, you know, what, what was their size? What was their technology level? Uh, what were, you know, the, what were the working conditions and, and, uh, you know, what was the relationship with factory managers like, and what was just your overall impression, even like your first glance when you first arrived and your first thoughts to what you learned about, you know, your factories and the manufacturing in general later on? Yeah, one of the things that I was amazed with is, you know, how modern our factories are over there. So Mars, you know, we, we have five principles and one of them is quality. So we take it very, very seriously. Uh, so state-of-the-art equipment, you know, we would, 
you know, really in, in my mind do right by the, the factory associates. So they, they had an esteem. They felt like they were really important where in other organizations, maybe not so much. Um, but with that, so as I'm saying, right, I, I think great standards, you know, they felt important within the organization. But because we held ourselves to such a high standard, I do think it gave us a little bit of a disadvantage in the marketplace because we weren't, weren't able to be as, as agile when it comes to innovation or, or some of those factory changes uh, than some of our competitors were because, because they didn't quite have the standards that we would, that we would enforce upon our own organization. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of things that, that you were quite impressed with, and that kind of leads into a question I wanted to ask a more general question of, you know, really what impressed you about, uh, you know, the, the, the business culture over there and that, that could be marketing, it could be innovation, it could be manufacturing, it could be the factories, but, you know, just, you know, the, the working environment, uh, in general, what really kind of took you by surprise and blew you away? The thing that blew me away was the speed at which they can act. Um, you know, one example is, you know, I'd, we were doing a, a workshop with a big retailer there and getting them to do some innovative, you know, ideas within their store. We had met on Friday. I flew in a, glo- a global counterpart to kind of walk them through this workshop. We co-created and came up with some ideas. He left that night. By the time he landed in the U.S. on Monday, they were already putting that and enacting in the stores. So just the speed from idea to action is incredible. You know, one of the mantras for for the organization there and, and many of the Chinese are go go go. Right? It's it's you go forward, you go forward, you go with speed. So their work ethic and and the ability to just drive that into the marketplace was one of the things that I was most uh, to be to be honest, astonished at where where in the U.S. you know we would t- typically take more time to think through the strategy, and maybe that's the contention contention there, right? They they're more action oriented, at least Mars was in China, than maybe we are here in the states. We have an MBA culture over here. Yes, and so we spend fifty five minutes planning before we f- spend five minutes you know, acting, uh, it's a little spin off of an old Einstein quote of given an hour, how would he spend it to save the world? Let's talk a little bit about the competitive environment because we hear a ton about just how competitive China is. So before getting into specifics, just generally your thoughts on, uh, the, the competition, uh, and the competitive landscape of China. No, I think it is one of the more competitive places in, in the world. Uh, the challenge that you have is I've, I think some of the Western companies now, right? You've, China's in a place now where they're not in awe of the West, right? You've seen their own product, you know, what was traditionally, you know, even by their standards con- considered inferior, where an outside product would be superior. You're seeing that flip on its end now, where with some really strong competition in the treats and snacks category specifically. You know, there's a company called Three Squirrels. I think they've been around about seven years. Uh, but now there are three. Or let's see here. They're, um, it's a great name, by the way. Three yeah, Squirrels yeah. for treats three and Three Squirrels. And they're, they've become a massive company within, within China. And they were completely online. 
I think now they have a hundred stores. Uh, you know, at first just really nut based. <laughs> so, so nuts and nuts and snacks, nuts and fruits. But it's it's one that they've really embodied both the the innovation aspect. So as you think through their turning outs, you know, they're creating new SKUs every every month. Where the traditional big CPG processes, you know, we innovate just a few times a year. Uh, another one is, you know, what they're what they're doing really well is also packaging. Right? They've taken and made that part of the, the customer experience more so than a lot of, of companies. And they've quickly been able to create a brand equity within the, the three squirrels and you know their mascots, if you will, uh, that really resonates within the Chinese culture. So, so with that said, you're seeing some of the homegrown, you know, new, new companies really pick it up. And then you're also seeing a little bit of a resurgence of some of the, uh, you know, old, old school, for lack of a better word, uh, companies that were there before. Like, so milk candy. And I want to say it's called Milka. I could be wrong on that one, but, but traditional brands really making a, a bigger play now. So it's, it's putting the pressure on the Western brands in China more so than they faced in the, in the past. How did Mars Wrigley compete with domestic Chinese brands like you just mentioned, Three Squirrels, if at all, uh, to what nature? You know, uh, I don't mean it to be a, you know, a combative um, style of, of, of question. I'm just curious. Um, and, uh, you know, just a little bit about your strategy and strategies and tactics um, that you that you leaned on. Yeah, I think for us, you know, what we've, what we have and, and part of my, my being over there, right? Mars is a massive global company, right? I think it in today's world, that can be a disadvantage because we don't have the agility as a smaller company. But what we do have is, you know, a global scale, a global footprint, a bigger, you know, as we look at research for the future, a bigger budget there. And, you know, one of the things that we were able to do very successfully is take a few pieces of best in class work and apply those to China to really drive results. And you saw that at the front end, uh, you know, as, as we introduced the queuing system and, and really made that work to drive the business. And that was taken from the U.S. Uh, and as you also look at, you know, some of the research that we were able to do to help drive the category. Uh, so from a retailer standpoint, so building that you know, relationship with, with the retailers or continuing that relationship with the retailers that, that the new competitors don't have. So I think we, we focused on that. And then also from, from a marketing and, and brand side, it was, you know, being a little bit bigger, we could s still predominantly go with the, you know, the existing channels that we have, but we were teasing out and testing a lot of innovative ways to do it in the future. And, you know, when you talk about staying competitive, you know, it's the best thing we can do is learn from those that are winning in the marketplace and, and try to not only do what they're doing, but what is that next step and really bring in, you know, that global presence that we have or the global best in class work that we have as a company and inject that into the marketplace as well. How do the Chinese get their fix <laughs> how do they buy treats and confectionery and candy is it all online do they go to the stores can you break that down a little bit for me 
Yeah. So as you, as you think through where they purchase, there is some of it online, right? The, the, the confection has a lower conversion online than it does in stores, right? As you think through impulse, uh, it's more about that immediate consumption of, I want a Snickers bar right now. So I'm going to buy it. And if it's not there, so when I'm online, I'm not going to buy a single Snickers bar to have, you know, two hours from now or a half hour, whenever the delivery comes. So it's a, online is a little bit more challenging. But as you think through in, in store, of course, you know, it's, it's a similar situation to what we have in the West. You have your candy aisle, you have, you know, at checkout, the expectation is that, that you have it there. What's different in, the, in Asia, or at least in China than the West is when we go to the checkout, you have candy or you have your gum, your mints, your chocolates, your, uh, you know, your, your sugars in, in China, what you see is just typically gum and mints with very little of the other ones. And that's how that consumer, that shopper has been trained. Because for years, chocolate and, and all of that had its, was in the aisle. And as the, you know, the shopper left the store, that's where you bought the gum and mint. So it's, it's a little bit of a different shopping habit even now in now in China and, and what we're trying to do or what they're trying to do is, you know, how do you make it, uh, you know, more confectioner treats and snacks versus, you know, just gum and mint in the front end. Did you measure uh, or have the opportunity to, to kind of dive into the data of, of just watching that shopping experience? Because I, I mean, I have this vision of like the 1970s bell bottoms, uh, you know, strolling through the, the cash register and typically, you know, the, the Snickers or the Mars, um, you know, or even a mint or gum, you know, it's, it's the last thing you put down and it's the, you know, which is after it's scanned is almost the first thing that you pick up and it goes straight into the purse. And, you know, these are the things that, you know, they, they, they're the last thing you grab, but the first thing you pick up after and, and it goes into the purse. And those are the handy items you just got to have around and almost like, you know, just when you need it kind of thing, like your breath or you're a little hangry or something like that. Um, did you measure any of that shopping style um, or were you really more just focused on, on uh, you know, the new ways of purchasing online? No, so we, we did a lot of that. But what you're seeing, is, so the biggest challenge and opportunity within kind of brick and mortar or treats and sacks or confection is that, you know, the move to seamless, right? I'm, I'm going to just pick up my items and I, and I walk out or I scan my items as I pick them up uh, with, you know, whether it's WeChat or it's, it's Alipay, right? You don't have to have that traditional checkout space like you did before. So when we were in stores, we were really looking at what is, where does that evolution go? And what does that mean for confection? And how do we, you know, how do we make it a win for the retailer, make it a win for the shopper and make it a win for the categories that are typically in the front as that goes away? Let's have a fun question. Uh, is candy just for kids in China or is it popular among adults? Oh, candy's, candy's always for everyone. <laughs> Is there anything that you noticed about what was preferred by the young, the middle, or the old in China? So, so I think as you think of the young consumer, there more it looks closer to uh, you know the West. I say and, and looks I'm using using lightly, but they're the ones more apt to have a Snickers bar, more apt to chew you know some of the the new gums. 
but as you look at the older demographic, uh, they're bigger on whether it's jellies, uh, meat floss, you know, any, you know, some of those really strange things is where, you know, the more traditional Chinese, Chinese treats. So, so everyone likes to have it, but, uh, some of them are, it just feels a little bit differently. What is meat floss? I, I'm picturing jerk chicken. So, so pretty much jerk chicken, uh, just real, real dry, real thin. Uh, and it's, they put it on top of bread. They put it on top of, you know, all sorts of weird things. And it's, it's a treat in itself. Yes, I can imagine. I mean, I, I jerk chicken and, you know, as the appetizer, the main meal and dessert for me. So, and in bulk, as you look at the different generations, so bulk candy, and if you ever have the opportunity to walk into a store, this is, this is where you'll find the real interesting items. Uh, bulk candy is traditionally bought by older, older shoppers. Uh, so it's given out as treats because they're all individually packed, but that's where you will find everything from, you know, a piece of dove chocolate to, you know, a, a Starburst type item to dried fruits to this, this meat floss to, uh, you know, it could be pieces of seaweed, which is an, another big one there, right? You're seeing in some stores, you know, four, eight foot sections now of seaweed treats as that becomes bigger and bigger. So that's, that's really where you get to have some fun and mm. try some things out there. Mm -hmm. I, it's interesting. Dove was huge. Uh, I remember that now, uh, when I was in, in, in China, um, can you point to some other skews, uh, you know, in, in the basket that you guys have that really kind of have a much larger, uh, market share there than they do here. So Dove is, Dove is a prime one extra. So as you think through some of the gums, extra five double mint is really big there. Um, you know, let me think through, those are really the, the bigger ones. And then some of the ones that you see, I guess, growing Snickers, Snickers, of course, is making a, a big, you know, big play there has ever since the Olympics last time it was, was there. And those are the big brands that we have. I would imagine in a place where the, the one child policy, the old double mint, double twins advertising probably wouldn't have played as well there. Uh, but it's, it's one that I don't know if they use that. That advertisement now that, now that we talk about it, but it is, it's because Wrigley was one of the first Western companies to really go over there after it was open. Yeah. Um, so double mint is still one of those massive brands and it, it, it's a little bit on the, the value spectrum when you think of gum, but still resonates with a lot, a lot of shoppers over there. Can you speak to customer data, data collection? Uh, it's got to be huge there. What, uh, you know, speak to it from your industry point of view. Um, how much data was there? Um, how did you collect it? What did it look like? Yeah, I think coming from the West, what you're able to get in China will blow your mind. Uh, because over there, you really have two kind of digital platforms. It's, it's Ali or it's Tencent and all of the retailers are connected to them. You have all of the social media platforms are connected to them. And what you, you're seeing is that not only do they know what you're buying, what we would see here in the, in the West, right? We would get retailer data. Uh, but working with Ali or working with Tencent, you could see, you could begin to use the data of what are they looking at? What are they watching? Uh, you know, where are they at? Because they're, everything is done on your phone, not, not your computer. So they know where you are. Um, you know, it's, it's very encompassing. It's, it's, uh, 
So ultimately they, they almost know everything that you do and how you begin to utilize that then is, you know, can you set up, you know, beacons so that when you're within X amount of range of a store or even in the aisle, you can begin to flag and, and send coupons, flint, you know, send reminders of, of picking this up. You know that, you know, if they're a lapsed user and, you know, one of the, another powerful thing there is that, uh, so Ollie, and RT Mart. So Ollie from biggest online retailer, uh, the largest offline, so brick and mortar retailer there, RT Mart, they just had an agreement that they're now sharing data. So Ollie will know not only what you're buying online, but what you were purchasing offline as well. And they're beginning to work with other retailers there as well. So it's just an, it's an incredible amount of data that you have that, that, that you can then build your, your marketing plans behind. Uh, to to attaining cash for those users. Is there any advantage? Does everybody have access to it? Is able is everybody able to gather it equally? I don't think they do, but it is well. It's become very much a pay to play game. So if you have the budget, you have you can get access to it. Uh, but if you don't, then then that's that's data that you don't typically have. So as you work with with Ollie, you can buy into their different campaigns. You can buy into different uh, you know segments that you want to want to attract, and that's one of the challenges that we have. You know, as you build it, build your business over there, is that you know that's taking away from margin that that typically you didn't have to spend on. So it, it forces you into reevaluating your business model. Have you had to? work up the chain a little bit as you started to discover the importance of it to convince maybe some of the, the North American seniors to, 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 to get into that. I I think it's one that I don't know if you have to convince them. The problem is you have to figure out how can you make it work sustainably? Everyone conceptually understands the reason why and its importance but when you have to figure out how do you pay for it now, it makes you evaluate things a little bit differently. And it, it makes you go back to your business and, and make the decisions, right? Is it worth the trade-offs, right? I know that I can get this, but at, at what cost? And, and I think that's where you see, you know, I mentioned three squirrels. Uh, you know, they've, they've built their business online and that was part of their initial business model. When you're looking at existing CPG companies, right? That's that cost isn't inherently built in, but it's becoming, um, you know, almost a must-have for the future. So that's where, you know, businesses are just having to make, you know, certain decisions whether they're going to or not, and you know, at what level, and then what are the trade-offs that they're willing to make to be able to to accomplish it. So you're saying it is it's competitive table stakes. I think it is competitive table stakes. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic. Jesse, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a great conversation and, you know, I really hope that you and your family get to get to get back to, to China soon and uh, get back to some of that food that you love. God, I appreciate it. It's been an absolute blast from my side. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. 
My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.